0: Progress vs Parasites by Douglas Carswell. Chapter 21. Populism The threat to free societies comes from political populism, apparently. Liberal democracies around the world are under attack from within, it's said. Donald Trump in America, the AFD in Germany, filters in the Netherlands, Viktor Obern in Hungary, and Brexit Britain. The electoral success of such insurgent forces is ominous for the future of liberal democracy according to disapproving public intellectuals like Yascha Monk. The BBC even made a video using Plato's quote about dictatorship arising out of democracy to suggest that Donald Trump in the White House marked the beginning of tyranny in America. Then there's the success of the radical left. It's no longer a few fringe figures or Venezuelan autocrats speaking the language of redistribution. In America, Kamala Harris and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, AOC, have been elected advocating these sorts of ideas. Across the Western world, traditionally socialist ideas about capitalism and class struggle have been given a toxic new lease of life under the guise of identity politics. Groups of people, as defined by their gender or ethnic group, are assigned a role as either the exploiter or the exploited. But what explains the rise of this sort of political populism? It's all about economic inequality, according to some. But is it? Since the early 1990s, hundreds of millions of workers have been added to the productive base of the world economy. As China and India opened up and the Iron Curtain came down, the labour supply within the global trading system trebled in size. In China alone over 70 million manufacturing jobs have been created since 2000, vastly more than the combined total of 42 million manufacturing jobs recorded in the whole of Europe and the United States in 2012. All that additional cheap labour meant lower median wage growth for Western workers. In America, the real median income of working-age males has only increased by 6% since 1971. It's why, they say, only 66% of working-age American men today hold full-time jobs. A record low. At the same time as all that, The digital economy started to have some pretty profound consequences allowing a tiny number of people to amass great fortunes while destroying lots of blue-collar jobs apparently. Now it's perfectly true that in a digital world marginal costs are low that is to say that the cost of producing one app for one single user or producing an app that's downloaded by a million users is not that different One of the consequences of this is that a preeminent product, whether it's a search engine or a taxi app, often won't just have a preeminent slice of the market share, it will end up dominating it. Digital, it sometimes seems, is made to produce monopolies or at least ensure that the best become ubiquitous at the expense of anything else. Compare that to what happens in, say, the car industry. Think of top-selling family cars. General Motors in 2017 had 17% of the American car market. Ford had 16%. There's even space in the market for Volkswagen and Mazda, with a tiddly 3% and 2% respectively. But what about the digital marketplace? Who uses any search engine beside Google? What was the name of? that thing you used to talk to friends online before Facebook? For many, Facebook is social media. Uber started out as one of a number of taxi summoning apps. In many cities, it's become ubiquitous. The winner, it seems, takes everything. And then there's automation. Artificial intelligence, according to Fen Ziang, law Professor at Tsinghua University in China, will inexorably result in the super-rich oligopoly of data billionaires who reap wealth created by robots that displace human labour, leading to a massive level of unemployment in their wig. The only trouble with this idea that globalisation and automation are driving down living standards and increasing inequality is that it's a myth. Living standards are rising and inequality is not. Hundreds of millions of additional Chinese, Indian, Eastern European workers, and others joining the global workforce. It hasn't meant an end to new jobs in the West. At the same time that all these hundreds of millions of new workers have joined the global labour market, tens of millions of new jobs have been generated. Europe and America too. In 1990 there were 109 million Americans in employment. Today there are nearly 150 million Americans in employment. In Britain the workforce has increased from 27 million to 31 million. Far from mass unemployment there were, until the corona crisis, more jobs in America and Britain today than ever before. And this great growth spurt in job creation has coincided with greater global economic interdependence. Many of the new jobs might be low paid, but globalization also means lots of cheap, affordable consumer goods. If globalization has dragged down median wages for blue collar Americans and Britons, it's also slashed the cost of living for millions. Since 1996, The real cost of household appliances has fallen by over 40 percent. The cost of footwear and clothes by 60 percent. Previous generations of mums and dads struggling to make ends meet complained about not being able to, as the cliche went, afford shoes for their kids. Today's parents can buy shoes for their kids from Tesco's for five pounds. With the real price of TVs and music players down by 90 percent, their kids, don't just have more shoes, they probably have a TV or some sort of screen in their bedrooms too. If blue collar Joe's six pack now earns less due to globalization, he's also able to afford an awful lot more from Walmart or Wilco, or perhaps I should say Amazon because of it. The lowest price or best deal is now ubiquitous Like me, you don't even need to be a particularly discerning shopper to benefit from all of this. Far from driving up inequality, global trade in the age of the internet is a great leveller. And even those on average incomes are able to buy the kind of consumer goods we would have until very recently regarded as luxuries. Those who attack the gig economy and globalisation are really attacking the ever greater refinement and ever more sophisticated division of the labor market. They ignore the effect that it's had on elevating living standards, driving up employment opportunities and making it easier than ever for folk to find work. Like Rousseau, the anti-globalists insist that the division of labor is demeaning, that the ability of workers to work the shifts they want when they want is somehow exploitative. That the ability of global supply chains to provide us with low-cost food and clothing is somehow undignified. This notion that the division of labour impoverishes us is no truer today than it was when Rousseau was alive. There's an even more fundamental problem with this globalisation plus digital equals inequality equation. Inequality simply isn't increasing. Over the past two decades, we've seen far greater globalisation and the takeoff of the digital economy. But if anything, income inequality has actually declined. That's right. The big increases in inequality in almost every Western nation happened before 1990. That was before globalisation really took off. And the digital revolution really got going. Inconveniently for many, facts about inequality just don't fit the theories. In Britain, the so-called Gini coefficient, that benchmark measure of income inequality, rose sharply in the decades before 1990. It subsequently stopped rising and, if anything, has shown a slight decrease. In America, the top 1% of income earners still make 13% less than they did in 2007, before the recession, according to Emmanuel Saez, the Professor of Berkeley. The bottom 90% make around 8% less. The gap between rich and poor has therefore narrowed. The Congressional Budget Office latest calculations suggest that inequality is almost 5% lower in 2013, the latest year for which figures are available, than it was in 2007. Nor should we accept the idea that digital means monopolies either. It's true that at any given time there certainly seems to be some pretty big, pretty prevalent players in the digital marketplace such as Google or Facebook. But the Internet is actually fiercely competitive. And the barriers to entry are not unassailable. Today's giants can be displaced, just as Alta Vista and Yahoo were. The position of Facebook and Uber don't seem quite as impregnable today as they did only a couple of years ago. If there isn't enough economic inequality to explain the rise of political populism, how do we account for the rise of this phenomenon? Those that disapprove of the way that voters vote often imply that the electorate's been duped. In Britain, ever since the EU referendum went the wrong way, many in the mainstream media have dedicated hours to trying to establish some sort of conspiracy. There was, according to certain newspaper columnists, a devilishly clever use of data and of fake news involving Russians and US plutocrats or something. It's almost as if some anti-Brexit sections of the commentariat class struggle to accept that a majority of their fellow citizens might elect to leave the EU. In order to come to terms with election outcomes they don't like, parts of the media categorise political populism as backward-looking. Populists on the radical left, such as Jeremy Corbyn, are all about reheated 1960s socialism, we're told. Those on the right are all about a desire to return to the monocultural simplicity of the mid-20th century, apparently. Does perhaps this sort of insinuate and insult analysis tell us more about elite opinion formers than it does about political populism? What if populism is not some sort of blast from the past, but a sign of things to come? Maybe digital technology isn't about fiendish algorithms implanting a false consciousness into the minds of Middle England or America. This is simply a case of enabling dissenting voices from outside the mainstream to be heard for the first time. Populist opinions are being heard because they now can be. A generation ago, ideas didn't get airtime unless they sat within a narrow spectrum of opinion. For a start, there were many fewer TV stations and far less competition between them for audience share. Who got airtime was decided by a cosy consensus between one or two established networks. Digitals created an array of TV networks and platforms and increased the competition between them. 24-hour news channels and the creation of a news stream rather than a news cycle means airtime for these new voices and if it seemed to boost ratings they get lots of it. 30 years ago there were no blog sites like Breitbart or Guido Forks. Before 2004 there wasn't even any Twitter or Facebook. The kind of people that ran mainstream media organisations might all agree that the issue of Britain's membership of the European Union had been sorted out long ago. Or that there was no serious case to be made for a radical redistributive system of taxation. Millions of people on social media don't seem to agree. Arguments that once seemed settled are no longer so. Digital has changed all sorts of public expectations. In the long tale, American author Chris Anderson foresaw how the digital marketplace would mean more choice. Instead of having to put up with what's on offer, digital allows you to find the niche product and tastes that fit you. Instead of buying the whole album, you can download the track that you like. Instead of taking the generic brand on offer, you can find what suits you. A generation ago, we had to watch what was on television whenever a TV programmer decided to schedule it. Distant DJs selected what music we listened to. Today, Netflix and Spotify allow us to program what we want at a time that suits us. Digital has changed our expectations of how things can be. Self selection has become a cultural norm. Choice and competition are the default expectation. Perhaps rather than being a rejection of modernity, it's modernity and the new expectations that it's created that have made the so-called populist insurgency possible. The idea of taking back control certainly seems to resonate with the electorate in Britain during the e referendum campaign. Digital means that there are now not just niches for opinions that are distinctive and particular. Some sections of the electorate seem so used to having their views articulated that they don't just expect to hear them. They seem affronted at the idea of other views being given at a time too, as plenty of broadcasters in Britain found out during the Scottish and Brexit referendum campaigns. Digital has, for good or ill, democratised the process of forming opinions. The parameters of public policy are no longer defined by a priesthood of pundits but by the autonomous actions of millions of people during this digital reformation professional pundits can often be heard railing against so-called fake news like old-time priests raging against heretics heretics might indeed often speak a lot of nonsense but they sometimes have an annoying habit of revealing the nonsense of the priesthood too. Those that feel threatened by the democratisation of opinion forming often point to the consequences of having populists in power. What they should instead do is look at populism as a consequence of who has power already. Today, some populist leaders, like Trump or Hungary's Victor Robin, managed to win the occasional election. But they've hardly established tyrannies. Donald Trump can't even get his infamous wall built along the border with Mexico. Auburn's government has been opposed by judges, his civil servants, EU officials at every turn. In Italy and Greece, populist prime ministers have been unable to decide their own budgets, having to submit them to EU officials for sign off first. Even when elected to office, populist leaders seem encased by bureaucracy. It's not just the separation of powers that frustrates Trump in the White House. He's appeared at times to be waging a perpetual battle against the bureaucracy of the federal government itself, against the administrative state. Populism is in large measure a consequence of the frustration that the electorate feels against an alphabet soup of administration. That is impervious to change. For all the sound and the fury, how much of the administrative state did Donald Trump actually recalibrate? Across much of the western world, the public have perceptively clocked that public policy making remains in the hands of institutions who don't answer to the public. And they resent it. They realise that legislatures have become increasingly perfunctory, full of placement, able to do little more than rubber stamp decisions made elsewhere. Officials are able to make laws without legislating. In Britain, something called statutory instruments enable ministers or rather their officials to change the law without going back to Parliament for permission. Government agencies use guidelines that the courts increasingly regard as having legal force. In America, too, Congress has been deferential to federal agencies, enabling them to fill in blank canvases handed to them by those on the hill. So why vote for establishment politicians that are placement to the administrative state? Vote for colourful characters who look like they might at least shake things up. The philosopher Bertrand Russell once told a story about a chicken in order to make a serious point about how some people use facts to support their favourite theories. Each day, Russell said, a farmer came to feed his chicken corn. Based on the evidence, Russell said, if the chicken had been capable of abstract thought, it might well have deduced that the farmer liked her. When the farmer started to double the amount of corn he gave the chicken each day, the evidence for the chicken's... Friendly farmer theory literally started to pile up. But then one day the farmer came, and instead of giving the chicken corn, he wrung her neck. Not so friendly after all. The friendly farmer theory might have been supported by the observable facts, but it was fundamentally flawed. And the alternative farmer fattening up chicken to eat theory, also supported by the facts, might have better explained what was going on. Yet Bertrand Russell's chicken wanted to believe the farmer was friendly. So used the facts to deceive itself. So much public policy making in the Western world is similarly bird-brained. Like that chicken, those that make public policy are so sure of themselves that they see only what they want to see. This gives rise to the most extraordinary conceit. Not only do public administrators have an overinflated sense of what they can achieve by design, but they ignore the evidence that ought to inform them that their ambition is unmatched by actual results. Consider, for example, all those early intervention programs in Britain designed to improve children's life chances. They never have quite the impact in terms of outcomes that they're supposed to. But they're such a nice idea so no one ever seems to want to contradict them. No amount of evidence seems to dent the enthusiasm of social workers to try to solve problems with other people's money. What about all those outreach programs that have zero impact on reducing life crime? How about all those Prisoner rehabilitation programmes, which involve staging plays, Shakespeare, but which don't actually have any impact on reoffending rates whatsoever. They're such a nice idea. People want them to be true. The reality is that the type of prisoner willing to take part in such programmes is halfway to wanting to mend their ways in the first place selection bias not performing shakespeare explains the lower reoffending rates even if it sounds brutal and heartless to say so a common currency would in theory make europeans richer it seems such a nice idea in practice it's reduced parts of the continent to a state of permanent penury Middle class people from France, Spain and Italy have had to move to London to enjoy middle class lifestyles no longer available in their own countries. Central banks setting interest rates would in theory mean stability and an end to boom and bust. In practice, it meant they tanked the banks. Perhaps populism is what happens when government tries to be so big and so all-embracing that it invariably underperforms. Populism is a response to the emergence of technocracy, but alas, on its own, it's unlikely to offer any viable solutions. In the first half of the 20th century, Argentina was one of the richest places on the planet. An open agricultural economy, Argentina sold farm produce to the world and imported manufactured goods from Europe and America. Her middle class prospered and many of southern Europe's poor went and settled in a land that was full of opportunities not available at home. Today, Argentina has fallen down the world rankings. She's somewhere between being a middle-income country and plain poor. The government has periodically defaulted on its debts, economic growth has often slowed, and there have been whole decades where she's gone backwards. Argentina, over the past 60 years, has become a byword for bad government and serves as a warning of what can happen when populists are put in charge. Rather than eliminate poverty, as Juan Perón, Argentina's most famous populist president, promised, he left the average Argentine poorer. Instead of dignifying workers, as the Peronist slogan demanded, his economic policies produced mass unemployment. The one part of the Peronist economic package that the government did deliver was to make Argentina's economy independent. High tariffs did indeed isolate the country to such an extent. An economy that had once been integrated into the world economy became cut off from it. Living standards fell. There then followed a cycle of intermittent economic crises. Out of the episodic chaos invariably emerged another strongman, sometimes elected, sometimes installed at the barrel of a gun. By the 1970s, the military were waging a dirty war, with thousands of the so-called disappeared murdered by their own government. Argentine aggression was at times projected outward. Almost leading to war with Chile in the 1970s and then manifesting itself in the invasion of the Falkland Islands in the 1980s. What happened to Argentina shows that populists might come to office for all sorts of understandable reasons but unless they do things that actually shift the balance back towards free exchange they invariably inhibit economic growth and progress. Perón and co set a successful society on a merry-go-round of redistribution and protectionism, failure and crisis. You don't have to accept anything as outlandish as the idea that we're starting to see what we might call the Argentinization of European politics to worry about where populism may take us. You don't need to agree there's a whiff of Peron about the current Trump White House. Just reflect on some of the history we've been looking at. See what happens in those exceptional societies that for a time achieved progress. In the dying days of the Roman Republic, populism pitched the populares against the optimates, neither of whom stood to restore free exchange, but to extort from each other instead. In Venice, Bagamonte's insurrection didn't arrest the concentration of power. It provided the oligarchy with the perfect pretext to concentrate it yet further still, establishing a new institution, the Council of Ten. Set up in the immediate aftermath of this failed coup, this body was to serve as the effective government of the Republic for the next 600 years. In Holland too, the populist leader, Johan de Witt, proved so incompetent Having failed to prevent invasion, he was then murdered by an angry mob. He was no more successful than the Gracchi at taking on the elite, and ended up much the same way. His main political achievement was to make the restoration of a strong sovereign, something he opposed, possible. When have populists ever moved a society away from redistribution and protectionism towards more specialisation and exchange? We should not imagine that any 21st century de Wits or Perons or Bagamontes or Grachi would do any better. So what should we do to safeguard the future of free and open societies? Thank you for listening to this episode of Progress vs Parasites. I'm Douglas Carswell and I very much enjoyed talking to you about the subject of my book, If you're interested in hearing more from this series, please do listen to some of the other episodes available on my podcast.